Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of The Divine Lantern. We are so glad you could tune in. With the blessing of His Eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. I'm Alana from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and I'm your host for the week, where we are joined by Father John, who will be discussing the topic, Those Who Partake. This will be followed by a Did You Know segment, and we will then conclude with a continuation of our series on monastic saints. Over to you, Father John. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. I wish everybody a blessed fast of the Dormition, and also, as we're still celebrating the afterfeast of the Transfiguration of our Lord, I want to call to mind a couple of lines from the hymnography that we say during this great feast that is very much related to today's topic and podcast. In the Troparion, we say you were transfigured and you did reveal to your disciples as much as they could bear. During also the Cathisma, we say, you have been transfigured, O Saviour, on Mount Tabor, indicating the transformation of mankind. Both these and many other hymns from the Transfiguration lead us in today's podcast. The Divine Liturgy, like this great feast, is a transfiguration. It's a transfiguration of time, of space and of persons. As we progress through the prayers and experiences of the Divine Liturgy, you will notice how poetically our journey of ascent towards God transfigures. If you pay attention to the Divine Text, you notice an evolving experience of those who are participating in the Divine Liturgy. We say, let us lay aside every care of this life at the Cherubic Hymn, where also we pray, we who mystically represent the Cherubim. Further, we enter these more elevated petitions, asking for an angel of peace, a guardian of our souls and bodies. We ask for pardon and forgiveness of our sins. We ask for all things that are good and profitable for our souls. And finally, we ask, a Christian ending to our life, and a good defense before the judgment seat of Christ. So as we move through the liturgy, so too our petitions and experiences, from beginning with prayer about this holy house and those who enter, we pray for our hierarchy, we pray for seasonable weather, we pray for the sick and the suffering, and then further, we give thanks for being made worthy participants of the heavenly and immortal mysteries of Christ. We see this movement in particular when we follow three small prayers said by the priest on behalf of all. The first prayer is that of the first antiphon. We ask of our Lord and God to give us, and to those who pray with us, the abundance of His mercy and compassion. The second prayer is after the Epiclesis, when we pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and the gifts. And we say, so that those who share in them, they may be for watchfulness of soul, for forgiveness of sins, for communion of the Holy Spirit, for fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, for boldness towards you, and not for judgment and condemnation. And finally, the third petition is said aloud before we together as the church recite the Lord's Prayer, when the priest exclaims, And make us worthy, O Master and God of heaven, with boldness and without condemnation, to dare to call you Father and to say, and then all together we pray, Our Father, forgive us, lead us, and give us. In these short prayers, we see a transfiguring experience in the Divine Liturgy. 
In summary, we first ask for mercy, then we move to freedom to speak in the presence of God. And lastly, we say with boldness. With boldness, we call our Father and say, Father, forgive us, give us and lead us. For this podcast, I would like to focus on the second above-mentioned prayer, which is read after the calling upon the Holy Spirit, the Epiclesis. We pray as follows, so that those who share in them, they may be for watchfulness of soul, for forgiveness of sins, for communion of the Holy Spirit, for fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, for boldness towards you, and not for judgment or a condemnation. In this prayer, we ask that through our partaking of the precious body and blood of Christ, we receive watchfulness, forgiveness, boldness, communion of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven, and boldness towards God. Calling on the Holy Spirit is not only to change the bread and the wine, but so that, as we say, we may be transfigured also. And this change happens and is the ultimate goal in us consuming the gifts. St. John Chrysostom points out, this moment is our moment of Pentecost. Let us look at these gifts from God as we partake of His body and blood. The first one is watchfulness of soul. St. John of Cronstadt says, The heart can change several times in one moment to good or evil, to faith or unbelief, simplicity or cunning, to love or hatred, to benevolence or envy, to generosity or avarice, to chastity or fornication. Oh, what inconstancy, he, he says. Oh, how many dangers. Oh, how sober and watchful we must be. Watchfulness is the action to guard ourselves from our automatic reactions to thoughts stimulated by our senses. It is being attentive to your inner self. The origins of the word come from the word meaning to guard or to inspect, to examine, to watch over and to keep under surveillance. Being watchful therefore means you have the necessary self-discipline to guard your inner sanctuary from being invaded by thoughts stimulated by your senses that could lead to sinful actions. It is the ability to intervene in real time the process of choosing how to act based on any kind of stimulus that leads to a thought. A simple example given by St. John Chrysostom is when he says, Let us guard our tongue, not that it should always be silent, but that it should speak at the proper time. A gift of our partaking in Holy Communion is to be watchful in our thoughts and our actions as a mind that is left to its own devices will remain untrained. The second gift is the forgiveness of sins. This raises two important questions. Can I have communion if I have sinned? And then do I still need to go to confession? In short, the answer to both is yes. We approach the chalice as needy sinners. We are reminded in the words of the Lord that it is not the healthy who are in need of a doctor, but those who are ill. And just a short time before, the priest exclaimed these words aloud as an invitation. This is my body which is broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. And this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So partaking in the Eucharist is for us to be cleansed and to participate in the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. The need for confession also remains for the more serious sins that we need healing for by the specialist of our souls. As sins that remain untreated easily become a festering wound in the soul, darkening our mind and poisoning different aspects of our lives. Another aspect of this prayer is that forgiveness of sins leads to open fellowship. 
Our Lord set a precedence before us that the church is open. Jesus broke bread and shared meals with tax collectors, with the harlots and the righteous. It was a guarantee of peace, of trust and of brotherhood. It meant in a very real sense a sharing of one's life. It was an openness, not exclusiveness. So therefore to have open hearts and true fellowship with our brethren is first to obtain the freedom of sins. The third gift is for communion of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Divine Liturgy, we pray numerous times for the communion of the Holy Spirit. In a famous conversation with Motovilov, St. Seraphim of Sarov says, However good prayer, fasting, vigil, and all Christian practices may be, they do not constitute the aim of our Christian life. Although it is true that they serve as the indispensable means of reaching this end, the true aim of our Christian life consists of the acquisition of the Holy Spirit of God. Asking for communion of the Holy Spirit, and it being the final and defining purpose of the summoning together with changing the gifts, is precisely to ask for the transfiguration of our life, for us to have life in Him. St. Paul in experiencing this union said, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The fourth gift is for the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. The divine liturgy is described as an earthly heaven. We begin the divine service by saying, Blessed is the kingdom. And we, and as we chant and are reminded in the litany of the Theophany feast, in the Vespers we say, Angels and humans intermingle. For where the king is present, there his retinue appears as well. The Lord's words, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or my kingdom is near you, or my kingdom is not of this world, are realized in the divine liturgy, and in our partaking. St. Gregory points out that we experience this reality in three ways, as a reality that was proclaimed to come, as a reality that has already come, and as a reality that yet is to come. In everything we do here also reaches the heights of heavens, and the heights of heavens are made real for us below in the Divine Liturgy. The last gift is boldness towards you, and not for judgment or a condemnation. We should never approach Holy Communion casually or out of habit, for it can be to our condemnation if not approached in the fear of God and with faith and love. What we receive acts according to our spiritual condition. If you are trying to live in repentance and according to the commandments, then the gifts will help you perfect yourself and your relationship with God. Yet, as mentioned earlier, if you approach casually or without preparation or habitually, then it can be, as we pray, fire-consuming the unworthy. Let us then prefer boldness than shame, freedom than captivity. And as much as we are able to prepare for the Lord to find the place to rest in our souls in order for us to have humble boldness before Him. To conclude, and in the words taken from the Ichos of the Feast of the Transfiguration, it says, Let us run to join Peter and the sons of Zebedee, and go with him to the Mount Tabor, that with them we may see the glory of our God, and hear the voice they heard from heaven, and they proclaimed that truly this is the radiant splendor of the Father. May we, in every divine liturgy, experience God's revealing and unending grace. Amen. Thank you, Father John, for that beautiful message. 
and now a series of readings from the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy Naptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. If you tell your brother how someone else denigrates him, you conceal your own envy in the guise of goodwill. St. Thalassios the Libyan Untimely talk sometimes provokes hatred in those who listen, sometimes when they note the folly of our words, abuse and derision. Sometimes it denies our conscience, or else brings upon us God's condemnation, and worst of all, causes us to offend against the Holy Spirit. St. Philathios of Sinai Just as it is impossible to cross the sea without a boat, so it is impossible to repulse the provocation of an evil thought without invoking Jesus Christ. Saint Hezekiah the Priest On August 14th in the Holy Orthodox Church, we prepare to celebrate the Domitian of the Most Holy Theotokos and commemorate the Holy and Glorious Prophet Micah. I am lifted from the earth, and if I reach heaven, I, Micah, shall get there thanks to thee, O scaffold. On the fourteenth, Micah on wood was lifted up. Of the tribe of Judah and from the village of Morasth, Micah was a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah, Amos and Hosea, and the Judean kings Jotham, Ayaz, and Hezekiah. He denounced the vices of his people and denounced also the prophets who prophesied of wine and strong drink. He foretold the fall of Samaria, which would come about because the city's elders took a bribe and the priests teach for hire, and prophets divine for money. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be ploughed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps. But of all his prophecies, the most important are those of the Messiah, and especially of the place of his birth. He named Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah's relics were found next to the relics of the prophet Habakkuk in the time of the emperor Theodosius the Great, by some mysterious revelation to the bishop of Eleutheropolis. On this day, we also commemorate the new martyr Simeon of Trebizond. By their intercessions, O Christ God, have mercy upon us. Amen. Did you know that each day of the week is dedicated to a particular event or saint? Stay tuned to find out more. A good word, a good word.
For most people, the days of the week are divided into work days and weekends. If you are a Christian, you may at the very least recognize Sunday as the Lord's Day. However, did you know that the Orthodox Church dedicates each day of the week to a particular event or saint? Monday is dedicated to the heavenly host of angels. Thus, we are reminded that, as Christians, we are called to live a heavenly life while still on earth and that whenever we worship God, we stand among the heavenly hosts of angels who perpetually say, Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. We are reminded that we mystically represent the cherubim and that we should lay aside all earthly cares for the sake of Jesus Christ. Tuesday is dedicated to St. John the Baptist. Thus, we are reminded of St. John's call to repentance, which was also echoed by Jesus Christ himself, who cried, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are reminded of the asceticism of St. John and his unwavering commitment to following Christ to the point of martyrdom. Wednesday is dedicated to the cross and the betrayal of Judas. Thus, we are reminded of the symbol of our salvation and how we are always offered a choice, either to crucify ourselves with Christ so that we may live, or to betray Christ to the cross, as did Judas, and thereby choose death. Thursday is dedicated to the Apostles and St. Nicholas the Wonderworker. Thus, we are reminded of the preaching of the Gospel throughout the world by Apostles, many of whom were martyred. St. Nicholas is commemorated especially as a Wonderworker, renowned for his charity and zeal for defending the true faith. Friday is dedicated to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Orthodox Christians typically fast on Wednesday and Friday to commemorate the betrayal and crucifixion of our Lord. Thus, through fasting and the commemoration of the crucifixion, we are reminded of the words of Jesus Christ spoken to his disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Saturday is dedicated to all saints, especially the Mother of God, and to the memory of all those who have departed this life in the hope of resurrection and eternal life. And of course, Sunday is dedicated to the resurrection, a promise given to all those who are baptized, live and die in Christ. Thus, in the Orthodox Church, we are reminded throughout the week that we worship God among the heavenly hosts, that we should pursue repentance and the kingdom of heaven above all, and that we should constantly be vigilant and choose Christ, not the world, and that ultimately we are called to share in the resurrection of the saints in Jesus Christ. The following segment is a reading from the Lives of the Saints. We have chosen to continue our collection of readings on the lives of the monastic saints, of which we are thankful to bring a selected number of edifying accounts. Monasticism is the ancient Christian practice of withdrawal from the world in order to dedicate oneself fully and intensely to the life of the Gospel, seeking union with Jesus Christ. The focus of monasticism is on theosis, the process of perfection to which every Christian is called. We hope that these readings will encourage you to put on the likeness of Christ, as did these ascetics and vessels of grace.
The old man yelled again, louder, and at that moment, the ship came to a complete stop, and this old man began to come towards us while walking on the waves. At that point, he took out of his shirt three apples and gave them to me, saying, When you arrive in the capital, give these apples to the patriarch and tell him that God sent them to him from paradise by way of his servant John. Taking out three other apples, he said to me, Give these three to the abbess of Chrysovalantu, whose name is Irene. Tell her to eat these in fulfillment of the desire of her soul, because now I have bought these from paradise. What can we say of her who God found pleasing enough to send fruits of paradise by way of his beloved disciple? We can only scratch the surface of the life of this most blessed saint, but I pray that it leaves you with a desire to learn more in your own time so that you can see the light which was put on the lampstand and has given light to all those around her. Irene was born to noble parents in the land of Cappadocia, beautiful and virtuous. Empress Theodora sought out a woman worthy of becoming empress to marry her son Michael and asked that Irene be sent to her for this purpose. However, on her arrival at the capital, she found Michael already wedded to another girl. Rather than being upset, Irene gave thanks to God that he enlightened the king to choose another wife. Before arriving at the capital, Irene passed Mount Olympus where the ascetic Ionikios the Great dwelt. Irene, hearing of this man's extreme ascetical life and knowing him to be holy, begged the scouts escorting her that they may lead her to him to receive his blessing. Saint Ionikios recognized her spiritual progress and exclaimed, Welcome, servant of God, Irene. Go to the capital and rejoice for the convent of Chrysovalantu needs you to shepherd her virgins. Irene sent people to visit the convent of Chrysovalantu so and found that it was in a beautiful and quiet place with a community of good nuns. Rejoicing, Irene refused all the noble men and wealthy leaders of Constantinople who were trying to make her their wife so that she could wed herself to the heavenly bridegroom. She gave to the poor all her expensive clothes and priceless things that were given to her by her parents. She freed her servants and slaves, cut her long golden hair and entered the convent eagerly so that she might pass her life peacefully and pleasing to God. The hater of all good constantly tried to trap Saint Irene in sin, torturing her albeit in vain. The enemy of men would try to stir up her desire for the pleasures of her former life. Although Saint Irene completely giving up care for her flesh and earthly things recognized his trickery. After confessing all to her abbess, she continued her struggles diligently. Day after day, the demons would taunt her, taking the form of darkened and ugly apparitions and imaginations. However, greater than the demon's trickery was Irene's courage and waging battle against the passions of the flesh, she stood triumphant. Saint Irene did not defeat the demons through her own strength, but often fell on the floor in tears, praying to the Lord and the Theotokos. She would beseech the holy archangels Michael and Gabriel to who the monastery's church was dedicated and all the saints asking for their assistance for many days and nights. Until one night divine illumination descended on her from above and overshadowed her soul and drove out all the evil imaginations. The saint now unbothered began even greater ascetical struggles. In this way, Saint Irene became enlightened and led many souls toward the light of truth. When the abbess of the monastery reached the end of her earthly life, she comforted all the nuns saying, don't be sad about me. 
for you have a good Abbas, more capable and more wise than I, and to her, be obedient with your whole soul. I am speaking about Irene, the daughter of light, the Lamb of God, the vessel of the All-Holy Spirit, and do not choose for yourselves any leader other than Irene. At this time, St. Irene was absent, and because of Irene's great humility, the other nuns were concerned to tell her in case she may flee the convent. However, her worthiness as abbess was soon attested to by the Patriarch of Constantinople, St. Methodios. Possessing the Holy Spirit and knowing the future, he knew that the nuns wanted Irene to be abbess, and that their decision was good and pleasing unto God. Immediately, he ordained Irene as a deaconess and read the prayers of installation of an abbess. Irene, feeling herself unworthy of this role and now bearing the responsibility for souls for which God took flesh and became man and shed his all-holy and all-precious blood, fell to the ground of her soul with tears and prayed, Master, Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, our guide and teacher, help your handmaid and this your small sheepfold and deliver us from the grasp of the noetic wolf. For you know our weaknesses and that we are not able to do anything good without your help and grace. Knowing that Irene continued to guide her small flock and having unshakable faith in God and immeasurable love for the sisters, she boldly asked God for the gift of clairvoyance so that she may know the secrets of the sisters and guide them evermore so that not one is condemned by their negligence. Seeing that it was a good goal, the Lord granted her a light-bearing angel that would converse with her as a friend whenever it was needed of her to know something secret. Saint Irene continued to pray fervently that one night while her hands were lifted to heaven, the demons came into her cell and began to scream in a terrifying voice. They would speak to her in the crudest of manners, mock and mimic the saint. Although throughout all of this, Saint Irene did not draw from her prayers for a single moment, being utterly unfazed by their attempts. The demons in their audacity then lit a candle and continued to light the mantle and veil of the saint. The flames reached down to the ground and not only onto the saint's clothing, but deep into the skin of her shoulders, chest and back. Still unfazed and unmoving, Saint Irene's whole body would have burned if not for one of the sisters smelling the flames and rushing to put them out. In just days, the severe wounds were healed by the physician of our souls. The humble Irene, seeing that she was revered for her holy acts, all the more condemned herself, and tears were always to be found in her eyes. She would especially cry during the holy liturgy when the priest would sacrifice God on the altar. Overcome with compunction, she would bow down her head so that no one would see her crying, feeling that she was a thief and evildoer and committed great misdeeds. Saint Irene remained disciplined in her ascetical struggles, often spending the entire day and night in prayer. She would not eat bread from the beginning of Great Lent until Pascha, only fruits and vegetables once a week with a little water. One night, a sister noticed Saint Irene praying, her feet lifted off the ground. During her prayer, two very tall cypress trees bent their trunks as if it was their necks and bowed before the saint. After her prayer, she would touch the treetops and bless them with the sign of the cross, permitting them to return to their original positions. An angel appeared to the saint and told her of the day she would repose. In the following year, on the 28th of the celebration of St. Pantaleimon, the Holy Mother received the Holy Mysteries and comforted the sisters regarding her repose. 
she selected the next abbess and among many beneficial words, left her nuns with the following remark. Be alert to walk the narrow and difficult road in order to find the spacious place of paradise. Hate the world and the worldly things because all of these temporal things are vain. According to the divine order, hate your own souls in order to save them. In a few words, don't do anything that your flesh wants, but rather the desire of God, because only he can help you at the hour of judgment. After her repose, St. Irene continued to help the faithful who would pray for her intercessions. She has been the cause of miraculous healings and aid to barren parents who have sought to start their family. In churches and monasteries where St. Irene is celebrated, apples are taken around the church in a procession and then prayed upon before her venerable icon for their sanctification. This remembrance of the apples given to St. Irene by St. John the Beloved Apostle has been a source of blessing and healings by all those who partake of them with faith. Despite being bestowed such grace by our Lord, St. Irene was always humble and diligent. She never considered that she was too good for the work she would perform because of her noble lineage, but performed even the most humiliating services without complaint. St. Irene was an image of obedience, aligning her will with first the Empress, the Holy Monk, St. Ionikios, her Abbess and her Patriarch Methodios, but ultimately to the will of her Heavenly Bridegroom. May we imitate this humility and obedience in our lives along with her incredible love for God and her brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we may please God and, like St. Irene, become vessels of service and a precious dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Not a temporal kingdom on earth did thou obtain, but Christ thy most comely bridegroom, vouchsafed thee heavenly crowns, and thou reignest as a queen with him eternally. For thou did dedicate thyself unto him with all thy soul, O Irene, our righteous mother, thou boast of Chrysavalantu and mighty help of all the Orthodox. Thank you all for tuning into another installment of the Divine Lantern. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and share with your friends and family. We have a couple of announcements for this week. Firstly, in commemoration of the Feast of the Dormition of the Theotokos, Great Vespers will be held at 6pm on Sunday the 14th of August, followed by Divine Liturgy at 9am on Monday the 15th of August, both at the parish of St. Mary's Dormition in Mount Pritchard. For more details on this and any other upcoming events, please visit the Archdiocese website at antiochian.org.au. Secondly, under the auspices of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, Divine Lantern Publications is proud to present its partnership with Beesenfest 2022. Established in 2014, Beesenfest is an international film festival totally dedicated to Orthodox Christian cinema and is accessible via beesenfest.com. Stay tuned for more details. That's all for this week. Have a blessed day and we hope to catch you next week.